Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. One year ago, the Commerce Department took its biggest swipe yet at China's tech ambitions. But China, it turns out, has been dodging many of the blows. Here, here's what I'll say. This is Gregory Allen. He's the director of the Wadwani Center for AI and Advanced Technologies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Yeah, it's a long title. The Bureau of Industry and Security at the Department of Commerce is 300 human beings who are responsible for policing trillions of dollars in economic activity. Uh, By contrast, just one Chinese uh, chip fab company, YMTC, began in 2019 to employ 800 people full-time, all day, every day, working on getting around U.S. export controls. Export controls. It's not the sexiest phrase, but limiting China's ability to buy microchips and other high-tech goods has been a go-to move in President Biden's tech war. The key question, though, how well is it working? Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. It's Friday, October 6th, and I'm Stephen Overly. On the show today, I tackle that question with Gregory. He's a former DOD guy who now studies the intersection of AI and national security. And he's not only been tracking these export controls over the past year, he's also tracking what comes next. The Biden administration is soon expected to update its export controls on chips and the equipment needed to make them. We talk about that, too. We're about at the one-year anniversary of the Commerce Department proposing export control rules really aimed at restricting China's access to chip-making equipment. As we look back over the past year, what's your assessment on how effective those have been? The October 7th export controls were really a landmark in U.S.-China relations in so many ways. Uh, They did restrict access to U.S. chip-making equipment, but they also restricted access to uh, the most advanced chips for training AI models. It restricted a lot of other things, too. And I think the effectiveness of the policy has to be sort of assessed by those sort of different market segments. And what I mean by that is chips are small, lightweight, and worth a lot of money. Right. And smugglers love that. Right. Um, and so there has been reporting that has confirmed, you know, that there is a black market for the NVIDIA chips that are used to train advanced AI models in China. Um, but the quantities available in the black market do not appear to be especially large. So there's a difference between, you know, buying a dozen of these chips and buying tens or hundreds of thousands of these chips, which is what sort of uh, the folks who are running military supercomputers would want to do or the folks who are running hyperscale data centers would want to do. So that's the effect, effectiveness on the chips. On the chip making equipment, uh, there are some types of equipment such as deposition equipment where the restrictions apply to all of China. And I think that's going pretty well. Um, there's other types of restrictions where they are the equipment is still allowed to be sold to China as long as a manufacturer you know swears that it's for a given use. Um, and I think there's real reason to be suspicious that that this part of the policy is not working as intended. Is it your sense that China is worse off or slower in its development now 
than it would have been had these export controls not gone into effect? Yes. No, I think there's there's unambiguously been a real impact. Um, the question is sort of what is the magnitude of that right. impact? So China is purchasing a modified version of the AI chips. Uh, NVIDIA, uh, which is the sort of leader in the GPU market, which is the sort of chip that you use to train large AI models, they created a modified version of their product that is legally allowed to be exported under the October 7th rules. And those chips are being sold in enormous quantities to China. And it's an inferior product, which sort of raises the cost of doing AI work in China, but it doesn't prevent doing AI work in China. So that's an effect, but isn't an effect, you know, as strategically large as the policy originally intended? Probably not. The same is true on the semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Um, The goal was to prevent China from making chips uh, more advanced than what is called the FinFET technology node, which is sort of the state of the art circa, you know, 2012, 2015 era chips. And China is still able to make these chips. Uh, the the news of Huawei and its partner SMIC having a new 7 nanometer chip in their new smartphone sort of proves uh, that the policies attempt to prevent China from doing this anywhere ever uh, is not working. However, you know, they're struggling to do it at really large scale, and it requires an enormous degree of subsidization in order to be economically viable. So the United States government has imposed enormous costs upon China, um, but I think it would be overstating the case to say that the policy has had all of its intended effects. Uh, I think a number of points there that you hit on kind of speak to this broader question of the effectiveness of export controls in Mm -hmm. general, particularly when it comes to high technology. You know, we had Senator Mark Warner on the podcast recently sort of making the point that he doesn't think the existing regime for for this sort of thing is effective, um, but getting bipartisan support for something different uh, has been a challenge. What are the loopholes that exist and could potentially be closed to to maybe plug some of the gaps in the existing system. Sure. Well, the first challenge to the export controls policy probably is not right to call it a loophole, but it is one of the biggest challenges, um, which is that the U.S. is in many cases not the only country that makes this technology. Um, The Dutch and the Japanese in particular have extraordinarily sophisticated semiconductor manufacturing equipment industries. Uh, Korea is not as good at selling uh, complete finished machines, uh, but they're great at selling subsystems and spare parts. And they have not been a part of this export controls policy until in July, Japanese export controls took effect. And uh, in September, Dutch export controls took effect, although shipments are still being allowed as long as they were purchased before September, uh, as long as the shipment is concluded before January And that was with some prodding from the U.S. Certainly. That uh, the Japanese and the Dutch uh, put those in place. They have been gorging themselves on Chinese revenue as uh, U.S. equipment providers have been restricted in selling their most advanced machines. Um, at the same time, you know, U.S. equipment makers are still allowed to sell most of their machines as long as they get uh, you know, approval from the Department of Commerce and signed letters uh, from the Chinese customer swearing that it's only for approved end uses. And so I think the bigger loophole um, that, that probably deserves to be called a loophole is uh, China's ability to create shell companies Um, which 
creating a shell company, you know, I have heard, uh, takes China, you know, perhaps two weeks. Um, identifying shell companies uh, can sometimes take two weeks, but sometimes it takes two years. Mm. Um, and so that's a long period of time in which sales can proceed and um, do so in defiance of export controls. And then when the, you know, when the, um, when the U.S. government de- uh, detects the shell company and restricts the sales to it, well, you just create another shell company. And so this is what I think uh, Senator Warner is sort of getting at when he talks about the current system not really being effective. It's a whack-a-mole problem, it sounds like. Yeah, and frankly, uh, you know, the United States, if you want export controls to continue to be an effective tool at a foreign policy, you had better get really good at whacking moles, right? Or you should give up on this as a tool of foreign policy. You know, export controls in the Cold War era were more easy to enforce because it was effectively an economic blockade. But now we're in this sort of new era where we are trying to enforce export controls against a superpower in the form of China. Um, but we're doing so in a way that continues to have really deep economic ties between the two countries, nothing remotely approaching the, the economic relationship that the U.S. and the Soviet Union have. And that's just a much, much tougher problem. And the staffing and the budget of the U.S. export controls organizations, it's still at the level where the bad guys are helping you. So we're, we're asking so much more of our export control system, and we're not giving it the resources to execute its new mission. Right. Well, uh, you know, having that closer economic relationship with China opens so many more opportunities for retaliation for mm-hmm. export controls for on the one hand. And then two, to your point earlier, I mean, this is this technology is highly lucrative. And anytime there's mm-hmm. money, a lot of money in play, there are bad actors who who will want to chase it. There was a comment you made earlier in our conversation about, you know, NVIDIA sort of dumbing down chips mm-hmm. so it can sell them to China and companies getting, you know, export licenses from the Commerce Department to continue selling some chip equipment to China. It kind of speaks to this question I keep coming back to myself, which is what does corporate America need to give in this equation to really address kind of the national security challenges that the Biden administration is talking about, right? You know, if you're actually going to hamstrings China's technological development, it doesn't seem that there is a way to do that without U.S. companies paying some sort of price in in the literal sense. Yes. uh, I think, to be clear, you know, U.S.'s goal for hamstringing technological development is restricted to technologies that have military applications, such as advanced AI systems, or where China is setting itself up for economic coercion potential, um, which is something that, you know, Chinese policy documents explicitly state as, as a goal. Um, in terms of, you know, what their what U.S. companies owe, yes, there is a cost of foregone sales. Um, and I think what the what the companies would sort of say is we are willing to pay the cost of supporting U.S. national security as it is defined in the law. Um, but if you do a lousy job defining national security uh, in the law, um, you know, we owe it to our shareholders. We owe it to everyone else. Uh, to you know, pursue that revenue, and if we don't, we would expect our competitors to do the same. And so, the sort of net national security benefit uh, would be minimal. I think the flip side of that argument is that corporations are often part of the reason why the regulations are weakened, um, and so you're sort of left at this really unsatisfying middle ground 
where the U.S. export controls are absolutely strong enough to scare the heck out of China and to persuade them that they need to de-Americanize their supply chains. But they are not strong enough to prevent China from succeeding in that goal. Uh, because the export controls, you know, as they finally get written, include a lot of compromises. Right. And in some ways, that's the worst of all the possible options. Um, in uh, you, you, you bear all the costs of a of a strong export control policy, but you don't actually gain all of the strategic benefits of a strong export control policy. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. We're expecting the Commerce Department to release its final rule on these these export re- restrictions for chips potentially very soon. Are we looking at that scenario that you're you're describing there, where we sort of have a strong regime, but it's not really actually as effective as it it could be because it's been weakened in in some ways? Sure. So I will say I have heard uh, that the updated export controls are coming soon, but uh, in the case of the outbound investment screening regime. I heard that those controls were coming soon every two weeks for about a year. Right. Well, I'm not um, holding my breath. <laughs> so <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, just to, to give your listeners a preview, yes, these, these updated regulations are expected soon, uh, but that doesn't always mean that they actually occur. Um, here's what I'll say I expect to see sort of in the updated uh, regulations. Um, the first is just that technology changes over time. So the rules, you know, say you cannot uh, sell a chemical vapor deposition process that uses copper above some temperatures, on and on and on. Well, technology evolves and now we use cobalt instead of copper or some some other switch like that. So there's just some basic sort of te- technology modernizations uh, that have to be done in the export controls. The The second thing is that the Japanese controls uh, control a lot of things that the American controls don't. And so if I was Japan, I would be putting my finger in the chest of the United States and say, hey, you had better back us. We're backing you. Um, so I would say there's there's a real need to sort of harmonize the export control approach, uh, in particular with with Japan, but also to a lesser extent with with the Netherlands. And then the final one is really tightening uh, the restrictions and closing loopholes. And here I think it, it gets to areas like uh, spare parts, uh, equipment and maintenance. So you know, for a company like SMIC, which is included on the entity list. You know, SMIC is not allowed to purchase spare parts for advanced machines, but perhaps uh, a new company down the road called Definitely Not SMIC Incorporated (laughs) um, does want those spare parts. And perhaps they will get a license. And so I think loopholes sort of targeting the maintenance and supply chains is uh, sort of one area that I expect uh, the controls to be tightened. And so you'll be reading this final rule when it comes out with a much more expert lens than most listeners and frankly myself included. So what will you, if there's anything in particular you'll be 
watching for that you think will be really indicative of either a change in the administration strategy or, you know, indicative of, of this final rule actually toughening up, if you will? Yeah. So I think the the question for me is, of course, what rules are going to be restricted on an end use basis, which means as long as the company has no knowledge that the the exported goods are going to be used for a restricted end use, then the sale can proceed. Um, so there's there, the October 7th export controls architecture includes end use based restrictions, and then it also includes blanket China wide restrictions. And I think sort of the most obvious uh, way to sort of strengthen the policy is to move more stuff that is currently in an end use restriction uh, to a China wide restriction. And that gets to the, that because the China wide restrictions are so much more effective when it comes to the problem of shell companies or of diverting exports for, you know, unintended uses, et cetera. Um, that's the sort of easy uh, way to strengthen the controls. Another way to, to strengthen the controls is uh, what Japan did, which is they added a lot of materials and chemicals to the export control regime. Um, so Japan is probably the leader in semiconductor manufacturing uh, materials and chemicals. And these these chip factories, they use a ton of really, really ultra-pure chemicals that are not trivial to manufacture. Um, and uh, they need it on an ongoing basis, right? It's not like you buy it one time and you're done. You are just receiving these extraordinary shipments every, every week. Um, and so if the United States joins Japan in restrictions related to materials and chemicals, um, that would also sort of uh, represent a strengthening and a, and a potential way to degrade China's existing advanced production capacity. So one last question for you. If we zoom out to the 30,000-foot level, what mm -hmm. some might call the spy balloon level, <laughs> if you will, um, the U.S.-China relationship is obviously fraught, has been tense for many years. It yeah. kind of has these fractious moments, if you will, and then moments of trying to get back on track. What do you expect in terms of how these uh, you know, final export control rules will be received in Beijing and, and what the impact will be on kind of the U.S.-China relationship trying to right course here? Well, you know, we have a, uh, a project here at CSIS called Interpret China, which uh, translates and circulates a lot of Chinese policy documents and a lot of Chinese policy scholarship. And one of the things that you notice in uh, Chinese policy documents and Chinese policy scholarship is that there's infinite analysis of U.S. moves and there's very little analysis of Chinese moves. This is not a policy community that is given permission to be especially reflective. And you have unlimited permission to say that everything the United States is doing is wrong and maximally offensive and so I would say that even if the uh, updates to the October 7th, 2022 export controls that, that we expect are coming in a matter of weeks, even if the updates are quite modest, I would expect the uh, Chinese reaction to be fire-breathing, you know, uh, vitriol. There is one uh, noteworthy development on this front, which is that the U.S. government has reportedly tipped China off this time. 
I don't have any you know personal knowledge that these reports are true, but uh, reportedly, you know, the United States has given advance warning to China that these updated regulations are control are, are coming, and potentially given some clues as to what might be included in these updated export controls. Um, if this rumor is true, I think that sort of directly reflects uh, the United States's goal to stabilize the relationship, um, because one consequence of the October seventh export controls is that. Uh, they were actually interpreted as being stronger than they actually are. And and the way that that happened is uh, U.S. firms paused almost all of their activities in China. And that pause was, hey, we need time to read these regulations right. and figure out what they legally require because we are we are legally liable from the moment the the ink is dry, um, but we don't know what's in the laws until we've read it. You know, had our lawyers go at it. So China interpreted that total pause in U.S. activity as the regulation, Got and it. so there was there was many weeks in which China was under the impression that the October seventh policy was a full semiconductor decoupling, and it wasn't. And so I think this sort of advance notice um, really is an effort to, to stabilize the relationship and to prevent that sort of outcome that happened on October 8th, you know, last year. Excellent. Well, Gregory, thank you for uh, joining us here on Politico Tech. Thank you. That's all for today's Politico Tech. A quick programming note, Politico Tech is off on Monday, but... I'll be back in your podcast feed on Tuesday with my next guest, IBM CEO Arvind Krishna. For more tech news, sign up for our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here on Tuesday.